This audio is from the first night of our Theology Night and was recorded on Thursday night, January 14th. Uh, this is the first of three in a series that we have called uh, Hermeneutics. Uh, this session has been edited some from its original content in order to fit this format. And if you have any questions as you listen, uh, please let us know at info at stoneoakbible.com. So we're covering hermeneutics, uh, which we've announced each week, kind of what hermeneutics is. It's a lovely theological term. You'll notice if you kind of deal with any kind of theological terms or whenever you get into theology that uh, we like to create big words for small things. It's one of the things that we do. I know whenever I went to seminary, one of the first things you have to do is kind of figure out the language barrier of seminary and of biblical courses because there is a language barrier whenever you hear hermeneutics if you're not familiar with anything as far as hermeneutics you're like i have no idea what that means simply hermeneutics is interpretation whenever you we use the word hermeneutics we're looking at biblical interpretation so uh we kind of take the term hermeneutics and we're going to expand it out uh, to not just look at the interpretation piece, because there's more work that needs to be done than simply interpreting the text. You have to also observe the text. And we also don't just end with interpretation. We also need then to apply the interpretation as well, apply uh, the biblical interpretation. So Bible study methods is what we're going to be covering for the next three nights. We're going to kind of break it up into three distinct categories of observation. One week tonight, interpretation the next week, and then application that third week. Uh, is how it should work out. Uh, time for each one of these is a little bit different though, so we'll see how it works out. Uh, this is what you have in front of you, the handout you have, and um, <clears throat> the slides I'm going through up here um, is a course that I actually took whenever I was at Dallas Theological. Um, it's a required class that every incoming freshman, no matter what your uh, tract is, you take this course. So if you're going for uh, a THM, a Master of Theology, which is their big four-year master degree, you take this course very first thing. If you're going for one of their two-year courses, you take this uh, as well, first thing. If you're going for even their counseling, they put you through this course as well. They, they hold this course to very high standard, uh, and I understand now why they do, because I went through it, and it completely changed the way that I uh, view the Bible, the way that I use the Bible, the way that I study the Bible. Um, it, it's how I preach as I go through this method, how I study as I go through this method. Um, it was one of those kind of light bulb moments and one of those kind of, I was angry moments because I was like, how did nobody show me this before? What have I been doing? Um, I feel like I've just kind of been treading water. Now I can actually swim. So all of that to say, uh, it's not original to me. This, this, what we're walking through is not original to me. Um, it's not original even to the guy that taught it to me. Um, it's a we're thieving of thieves. Uh, but I have three books of people that it's not original to, but we're going to say that it is because they wrote about it. Uh, the first one um, is How to Read the Bible as Literature. Small, easy read, um, interesting book. Next one, uh, Methodical Bible Study by Robert Traina. Uh, if you've done interpretation or if you've done something along the lines of kind of a basic primer for interpretation, I would suggest this book next. Um, it is a very rich book. It's one of those books that has uh, an ugly typeface because they didn't want to waste money because the content is so rich. Uh, and then the last one is Living by the Books by a guy named Howard Hendricks, uh, which is... 
uh, his method of going through the three-step process of observation, interpretation, and application. If you've never done anything as far as Bible study methods, I would highly suggest you pick this book up. Uh, this is the book that you could take this book and you could then kind of do what I'm doing here. Uh, because I've taken this book and kind of tried to put it as much as I can into a uh, succinct PowerPoint type of form. Living by the book, Howard Hendricks highly suggests this one. Uh, it's an easy read as well. It's pretty and it has pictures in there, which is always a nice thing whenever you get a book from seminary that includes pictures, they're rare. I think that might be the only one that actually did. Absolutely, ask away. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Bible study methods is kind of the overall. So within Bible study methods is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is simply the, the second week of interpretation. Whereas Bible study methods is kind of the big picture of observing, interpreting, and then applying. So hermeneutics is kind of underneath the umbrella of Bible study methods. Make sense? Yeah, because I know <coughs> Correct. They do. So it's kind of a, if you enjoy the Bible study methods and you want to get a whole lot more, you can then take that hermeneutics class where they kind of get into the interpretation on a much, much deeper level. Even this book here, The Methodical Bible Study, it's a, a book that I would say is interpretation based uh, to where it goes through all the different types of uh, scripture, how to interpret them, um, the different um, ways to look at the scripture. It's great book, but it's a deeper book. Uh, so that would be more along the hermeneutics line, where living by the book would be more along the Bible study methods line. No problem. <clears throat> All right, so let's begin. Uh, so I have a couple quotes up on the very top. First quote, dusty Bibles always lead to dusty lives. What does that quote mean? What do you think that means? Not everybody at once, calm down. Okay, if you don't read it, how can you expect your life to change? What is a dusty Bible? What's that meaning? Not used. Okay, and what are they meaning by a dusty life? Okay, close to death. Okay, awesome. Close to death. Yeah, you can kind of think of it that way. Um, I think the author of that quote, I don't remember who it was now that I, I have it up there. Uh, anonymous, of course, the famous the famous quote writer, uh, dusty lives of probably along the lines of sin, which we can equate that with death. Next quote, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. It's a, a, a rich quote there. Um, keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. We'll talk about that next, kind of the, the end of that section here in a bit. So why should we study the Bible? Why do we even need to worry about Bible study methods? Um, what is the purpose of studying the Bible? We have three reasons here. Bible study is essential to growth. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. There is a growth that should occur from studying of the Bible. Bible study is essential to spiritual maturity. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I love that. That's a fun verse. For though by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. And he continues to go on. There's a maturity level that should be occurring within Bible study. It goes right along with the growth factor. And the last in Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So let's answer a, a bigger question. I think majority of us would agree uh, the fact that you have taken some time out on a Thursday evening to come to uh, a lovely, we, we do a great job of naming these theology nights again, uh, a theology night on hermeneutics, well done. Um, so you you probably have some understanding and some reasoning for why we should study the Bible. Let's kind of look for a bigger picture. Why, pe- why people don't possibly study the Bible? So I have three listed here. Number one, it's boring. Have you ever heard that before? Someone say that scripture can be boring. I know I definitely have heard that one before. Uh, I don't have enough time. I think this is probably the most culturally relevant uh, excuse that we have for why people don't study the Bible is, well, I'm really busy uh, from sunup to sundown. As soon as my, my eyes open and as soon as my head hits the pillow, I am constantly busy. Or my kids, man, my kids take up all of my time and I don't really have time to really devote to this. Uh, it isn't relevant. I don't see the need for this. I don't see the purpose for this. I can go and I can read it, but... It doesn't actually change anything about me. What other reasons might people have for not studying the Bible? They think they know enough. enough. Absolutely. An overconfidence within it. That I've been a Christian for so long. I've sat underneath a number of pastors. I've read my Bible from cover to cover a a number of times. I'm okay now. What else? Don't Don't understand it. Excellent. That there is, this, this is a confusing book. We call it a book, yet there are 66 individuals within there. We have chapters, we have verses. Um, I know as uh, many new Christians, if you're handed this, you have no idea where to begin. You're lucky there's a table of contents in there, and that will help you at some point. But if someone says John 3.16, I can find the book of John. I have no idea what this 3 or this 16 actually means. It can be a very confusing and a, a, a almost uh, a threatening book because of the amount of confusion that can occur just simply finding verse, chapter. What else? Why else might people not study the Bible? It's not a novel. novel. Exactly. I I can't read this in one sitting. I can't read this in a week. It's going to take a lot of time. And the characters are constantly changing. How do I know David's over here and then I get to this other book and David's not even anywhere in there. I don't see any any congruency. I don't see anything kind of going together. It's, It's confusing to me. How, how does this all work out? Any other reasons you can think of? They don't know the author. What was that? They don't know the author. Don't know the author, absolutely. Bob, what'd you have, sir? I'm going to say, I don't want sin revealed. It hurts. Yeah. yeah, I don't want sin revealed within my life. This book challenges me, and it makes me uncomfortable, and I don't like that feeling very much. Therefore, I know if I do, don't read this, and if I avoid it, I'm going to feel a whole lot better about myself. So I'm going to avoid this at all costs. Excellent. So Bible study methods, like I said, we're going to break it up into kind of three groups here. And each group has a question that goes along with it to help us kind of remember. So the first one is observation. We're going to be covering that one tonight. And the question with observation whenever we're looking at the text is, what do I see? Next week, we're going to cover interpretation. And the question with interpretation is, what does it mean? And then on the third week, so two weeks from tonight, we're going to cover that last piece of application of how does it work or how does it actually apply. 
three uh, ways to kind of categorize it, which helps us, and then three questions even more to kind of give you an overview, a quick snapshot of what each one of these are going to be. So the first one was observation. observation. Good. Somebody has observed their paper or they have observed me speaking and have listened and see that the first thing that we're covering is observation. I've said it a number of times, so hopefully somebody picked it up, which you did. Well done. So the three things to look for when doing observations. <clears throat> we have terms. We have structure and literary form, which I put those two together, as well as you have general observations and atmosphere. Okay, those are the three things we're going to look for when we're doing observations. So the first thing is terms. Correct. Well done. Glad you're following me here. Terms is our first thing. So terms, keywords that are crucial to what an author has to say because it unlocks meaning. It shouldn't be new information to you. Uh, anybody like an English teacher or you just absolutely love English? Okay, a couple of you. You're going to probably geek out over this section. I do. I love to see, uh, I love to learn new words. I love to kind of think about the meaning behind words. I love to see connections and relations between words. So this is where I kind of geek out is in this observation stage. So terms. Everybody knows terms. We all use terms. What we're going to do with those, we're going to look at what terms are key within this. So if you look below that, in the middle of your page, you have a verse here. It's a verse that I would say majority of you have seen. Some of you have probably memorized this verse. Uh, it's on our website. It's where we get our mission statement from. It's a key verse. It's Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if we're going to look at this, we're going to observe it. The first thing we're going to observe is the terms, okay? We're going to look at the terms first. Terms, keywords that are crucial. Look at this text. What keywords do you think are crucial within this text? Go, okay? The very first word. The very first word is go. We're going to say that's a keyword. Pause. What you're going to want to do now is tell me why it's a keyword. Or you're going to want to give me the interpretation of it. Hold. All you're going to do right now is observe. You're just going to look. You're just going to tell me what's on the paper and what's important. Don't tell me why. Don't tell me how. Just observe. So the first keyword is the first, set, first word of a sentence, which is usually one of your keywords. And it's simply go. What other keywords do we have within here? Make. Make is a keyword. Go, make. What else? Okay. Disciples is obviously a keyword because, as Bob said, he took the next step. We have to know what we're making, and we're going to make disciples. What other keywords do we have? All. Of all the nations. Okay. That's an important word. Could they have left out the word all? Could have. Go therefore and make disciples of nations. However, by inserting the all, what does that do? Okay, it takes care of name changes. Okay, excellent. It also shows an encompassing. It's 
everything. It's a key word. What else? We skipped therefore. We skipped therefore. What's the therefore therefore? It's always a key. If you see a therefore, figure out what the therefore is therefore. What else? We skipped another key word in there. Yeah, we can circle them all. They're all keywords. It's all inspired word of God. Absolutely. The and. Why, why do we think that and might be a keyword? It's not or. Good. It's an inclusive word. Go therefore and as you are going, make disciples of all the nations. Any other keywords you want to kind of pick out from that first row there? Baptizing. That word's an interesting word as well. Anybody see anything interesting about that word, baptizing? What tense is that in? Okay, it's a present. Future as well. Okay, so it's a present future. It's baptizing, meaning here as well as there, later on, okay? It's a present as well as future. It's not a baptized or baptize, a singular, but a continuing, baptizing. Any other keywords in that first row there? Them. That's a confusing word. Whenever we're approaching this text for right now, we're looking at it out of context. We don't see what's coming before. We don't know what's coming after. Right now, we're looking at it out of context. The them creates a question. What question? Who is the them? Who is them? Excellent grammar. Who is them? We don't know. Looking at this passage, we're unsure of the them because we don't have the immediate context before. The immediate context before, we hope, would show us who the them is. But for right now, we're not going to answer any questions. We're going to ask our own questions, though. And one of our questions during our observation is, who is them? Your observation of the text can be a question. That is perfectly fine. Because on the next step interpretation, hopefully at that point we get to answer that question of who is them. Anything else within that first row? It didn't go even to the comma if you need to. Okay? We're baptizing them how? In the name. That's confusing. What does that mean? I'm unsure. But I would think baptizing them, I think I would include in water. But it's not. It's not giving me a substance to baptize in. Instead gives me a phrase of in the name. I'm not sure what that means. Another question for my observations. What does it actually mean to baptize in the name? I'm going to answer that in the next section. Okay? You understand where we're going with terms so far? We're looking at just the physical words that are there. We're not trying to answer all the questions yet. We're presenting questions that we hope to later answer. Don't go into the step of interpretation yet. You're going to want to whenever you're looking at the text. Hold off. Also, try to look at it out of context first. Because it's out of context that I then am going to have to look in context. 
out of context causes me to ask questions like, who is them? That I then have to answer that question in context. If I look at this in context, though, I'm not going to ask the question of who is them. And I can miss something that would be there that would be very important. So after terms, what's the next thing we're going to look for when we're doing observations? Number two is structure and literary form. So how are the pieces connected? What's the main subject, object, or main verb? What type of literature is this? Is this poetry? Is this narrative? Is this a letter? How is everything connecting and coming together? So for this section, we're going to look at the connecting pieces. Within language, what do we have for connecting pieces? Conjunction, junction. I know it's going through your head right now. It's got to because it goes through mine. Every time someone says the word conjunction, it's conjunction, junction. What's your function? What are some conjunctions that we have within here? And that very first and is a conjunction. What is it, what's it connecting? It's connecting the going and the action that's following here. They're not opposite. It's not either go or make disciples. It's go and make disciples. What other connection piece do we have? Okay, the therefore. Okay, that shows the emphasis with the and. Go, therefore, and. It's a connection piece. Excellent. What else? Don't ask a question, answer a question. Answer the question. What, what are you saying? Give me an example. The worst I can say is no. Of the nations. Of the nations? What's that connecting? In the name. What's it connecting? Of the disciples. Okay, the of the nations, what's that one specifically connecting there? All. Okay, connecting all. Anything else that's connecting? What's your verb? First verb you see, make. What is connecting of the nations? It's connected back to make. It's connecting to our verb. Let's go through, let's look at all the verbs that you see within here. First one we had was make. What are some of the other verbs we see? Action words. Go, the very first one. Go, make, baptizing, teaching, Observe, commanded, am, the being verbs. Don't forget about those. Those are fun ones. Okay? So we have the, the verbs within here, the action pieces within here. Some of these are active. Some of them are passive. Okay? The active verbs go, make, the doing type of verbs baptize, teach, the passive verbs in here. Uh, commanded is a passive verb. Am, I guess that would be kind of a passive verb. I guess being verbs can be titled as passive. Okay. Uh, any other things when you look at? What's the subject within here? What's the, the noun within this? Understood. It's an understood you. Okay. Typically with an understood you, we don't see the you. 
But who is this speaking to? Me. Me, okay? It's saying, you go. The you is not within here, but it is an implied subject. It's the understood you. I know a lot of you guys are like, I thought I got rid of that in like middle school and high school. I don't remember anything about this. And all of a sudden it's like hitting me back to cobwebs. It's okay. It's all right. And understood you, all it means is that you is not within there. I don't see a subject. I don't see who this is written to. So if I look at it, it says go therefore. It's implying that I'm speaking directly to you. Okay? Uh, any other connecting pieces that we see within there? Or within here, you can also look at disconnecting pieces. There are many pieces within here that are uninspired. However, they're in there to show us a disconnecting piece. How do we show a disconnect or a pause within language? Commas. Commas. What else? There's something else within there? A semicolon, and then ultimately the period. Each one of these holds a different weight, comma being the least amount of time spent when speaking, a period being the most, semicolon kind of being right in the middle of those two. These are uninspired. However, let's look at them. They're uninspired, but I want to see why they're in there the way that they are. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, comma baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, comma. Let's take that section there. Between that first comma and that second comma, what do you see within there? You see a list. One, two, three. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We see three things. How do we usually separate things within a list within language? Commas. Why possibly did whoever wrote this translation choose to not insert commas there? Excellent. Because we have one entity. We have Father, Son, and Spirit. We have the Trinity within here. Now listen, these are uninspired. Commas are not in the original text. Periods are. Commas are not. So the commas were written by whoever the author or whoever, let me, not, let me rephrase it, whoever the uh, publicator, is that a word, publicator? Whoever published your Bible. Publisher. Publisher, there we go. Publicator did not sound right. <laughs> whoever the publisher, thank you. Whoever the publisher of your Bible is, chooses to place uh, the commas within. So within this section, they chose to not separate the Trinity. There's a theological point within that. Within an uninspired piece, there's still a theological point that the publisher wanted to show that Father, Son, and Spirit are not disconnected. Could they have put a comma in there and could it have been the exact same? Absolutely. It could have been Father and the Son and the Spirit. However, this publisher chose, I don't want to disconnect the Trinity. I want to leave it all as one, so I'm not going to put a comma in there, where typically we'd see commas within. It's interesting. Uninspired, but you can still see a theological point in there of the Trinity. What about that semicolon? Let's look at that. 
Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Everything after that semicolon, does this verse still make sense if it's gone? Yes. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. End. Do we still have our mission? Yes. Is it still clear what we are to do? Yes. Why in the world do we have that end section? What is that end section then? Encouragement. Look at that last section. And lo, and even. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm thinking most likely that the author of scripture here could have possibly realized, hey, that's going to be a difficult task. Let's insert some encouragement within here. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's tough encouragement. And lo, I am with you always. Could it have stopped? Yes, but it doesn't. Even, even to the end of the age. There's emphasis even within the, or there's encouragement even within the encouragement. And lo, I am with you always. Encouragement. Absolutely. God is with us to do this, this task that's up here that is tough. But good, he's with us. But even within that encouragement, we're even added even more encouragement. How long is he with us for? Even to the end of the age. There's an encouragement piece within the encouragement that is tacked on to this tough, tough mission. They separate this. They, sh they choose to show the distinction between the top mission and the bottom encouragement. How? A semicolon. They choose to show these are one thought, but we're choosing to separate them out. It helps me as reader to see that the top part and the bottom part are connected, but disconnected at the same time. They're one, but different. There is a mission and there is an encouragement within here. <clears throat> so we look at structure and literary form. Next thing, let's look at atmosphere. For atmosphere, what's the setting? Is it written while in prison? Is it written during the exile? What was it like to be in the author's shoes at this time? Who wrote this section? Who wrote the section we're looking at? Matthew, okay? Matthew wrote this section, okay? So we're gonna to try to place ourselves within Matthew's shoes. And who is he speaking about here? Jesus, okay? If you have a red letter Bible, these words are going to be read. They're spoken, as if they're spoken as Jesus has said them and then written down at a later time. So these are the words of Jesus. Anybody have any idea where this falls in relation to Jesus? After the resurrection, so Christ has gone to the cross. He has been placed in the grave. Three days later, there is the resurrection. We then have a period of time where Christ is on the earth. And then we see in the book of Acts, we have the ascension. This is written between that time period. 
As far as within the book of Matthew, as far as within the actual chapter and pages within the book of Matthew, where does it fall? It's the very end. It's the very end of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you've ever had a family member uh, who is on their, their last breath and everybody knows it, how strong do you hold on to those last few words of them? They mean a lot. They absolutely do. What someone says to you on their last breath carries a significant amount of weight. Christ here, in the book of Matthew at least, this is the last thing that Matthew records him saying. It carries a weight with it. It's how Matthew chooses to end his letter. is by giving us the mission and giving us the encouragement that Christ has presented to us. The setting can be very important. Uh, if we look at the book of Job, the setting of it and who is speaking is very important. You could come to some very wrong theological positions if you just hop into the book of Job and look at his friends as being wise individuals. However, we'll see later on as we're going through the sermon series in Job that his friends, they mean well, but their understanding, their theological positioning of who God is, is off. But if I don't know that, if I just hop in, I'm going to be in some trouble because I don't know the context of what's happening. I don't know the atmosphere of what kind of a situation is happening here and who's speaking. It's important to know who's speaking. It's important to know what the setting of this is as well. Whenever Paul is in prison and he's writing to us in his chains and he's talking about persevering, there's some weight that comes along with that. Paul isn't sitting on this lovely throne room and everything is great for him and he's popped back eating some grapes talking about persecution. He's sitting in prison. He's counting it all joy at this moment while he's in chains and while things are extremely rough for him. The atmosphere is important. Don't skip over that part. So we look at this text. <clears throat> there is a lot within these two verses here. And we've done three simple things. We've just simply looked at terms, structure and literary form, and atmosphere. Okay? Those are the three things we're going to be observing regarding the text. We're trying to ask the big, or answer the big question of what do I see? Don't go to the next step of interpretation yet. Don't go to the step of application. Simply look at the text and tell me what you see. How is it connected? What are the important terms? What are the verbs? What questions do you have regarding this? Do you understand that it's extremely important to you do? If you don't, throw up a hand. What can I clear up for you, Mr. Brad? How long a section do you work with? <coughs> yes. To the period? There's going to be times where you get stuck after like four words. That's okay. There's going to be times where you can go through three or four verses. That's okay. It's kind of dependent on how much you want to get into this and how nitty gritty you really want to get. Uh, because we could spend literally all night with two verses here. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we can go through each one of these terms and talk about why they're significant. We can go through each one of the connecting structures and tell why does this piece and this piece, how are those two connected? 
Are they connected? You can also go through the atmosphere, same thing. So there's gonna be times where some of the text, it's gonna be a whole lot easier for you to get into the, the observing of it. And you're gonna fly through and you can say, I can do like three verses of this and it's great. Other times it's gonna be a lot tougher. We chose a text that's a little bit easier here for Matthew 28 to kind of do this. Because of the wording of it, there are some words in here which are great words. Uh, there's some connecting pieces which are very obvious within here as well. As well as the atmosphere of it. Sir? Um, I, I don't remember real distinctly any uh, differences between the King James that I grew up with and what this is. Yeah. But there's other passages there's a vast distinction between, you know. Absolutely. So, so pause with the translations, okay? What I would suggest is whenever you're observing, look at one. Choose one. It can be King James. It's not a problem. If you grew up with it, it'll come a lot more naturally to you. If you didn't grow up with King James, it can be very confusing. Uh, because, like, for instance, Matthew 28 has the word low and low. I don't use the word L-O, low, in my normal English language. Therefore, that's a word if I'm doing my observations. If I, if I see a word I don't know, that's an observation. I have no idea what the word low is. That could be one of my observations. Because my next step interpretation, whenever I can use some Bible tools at the end of it, I can grab a dictionary. And I can look up the word low. If I'm using the King James and I'm unfamiliar with some of the language within it, I'm going to have a couple of words in there or maybe a lot of words in there where I'm like, I don't know what this word means. If you've grown up with King James and it's kind of your bread and butter, go for it. Later on, it's helpful to look at different translations to see, wonder why this translation chose to translate it like this and another translation chose to translate it like this. It can be helpful at times. Any other, we can clear up some fuzziness. Frank. One thing who is it written to? Absolutely. The subject of it is important. Correct. 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 Absolutely. Uh, if we look at, I'm thinking of like even Titus or some of the pastoral epistles where it's written specifically to a pastor that has a different application piece to someone that is not a pastor. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you, but the application of that will be a little bit different. The audience of it is very important. One and interpretation, many absolutely. One interpretation, many applications is what he said. We'll get to that one next week. Excellent. Anything else we can clear some cobwebs over? This is your chance, okay? If there are cobwebs, you need to ask questions now because it's coming. Get ready. Excellent. You have homework. I warned you. If there are cobwebs, it's too late now. You have homework, okay? <laughs> Everybody's like, I didn't know we had homework, okay? I'm going to do it right along with you because it's been a while since I've done this. It's tough. I'll tell you that right now. It's hard, it's challenging. It's worth it. This is the class where I was like, I don't even know if I want to go to the school anymore. This is so difficult. This is in like week number one, day two. And I was like, I don't think I made the right decision because this is just way too hard. 
Looking back on it, it stretched me in such a significant way and I am so grateful for it, okay? Your task is you are going to do exactly what we have just done. You are going to observe the text, okay? Your text is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, verse 8. Very familiar passage to majority of you. Okay? Acts 1, verse 8. You're going to do what we have just done. You're going to observe the text. You're going to look at the terms. You're going to look at the structure, the literary form. You're going to look at the atmosphere of it. Pause. I picked a very familiar verse. Don't get into the habit, though, of I know this verse. Try as best as you can to look at this one, for right now, out of context. Your brain has been erased. You have no idea even what the book of Acts is. You have no idea who is speaking unless it specifically tells you. You have no idea who it's written to unless it specifically tells you. You have no idea what comes before. You have no idea what comes after. Look at this verse as a singular piece. Erase your brain of any theological position, any theological knowledge, any understanding for right now. We'll get into that at a later time. It's important you don't do that continuously. But for right now, look at just this verse. I do. I have the neural eyes. If you always look at this microphone right here, three, two, good. Well done. Acts 1 8 is a brand new verse, okay? Try as best you can. You're going to come into it, though, with an, a knowledge that you cannot erase. That's okay. Try as best as you can to look at it with fresh eyes. Observe the terms. Observe even the pieces that are not inspired. Is there punctuation within here? Why would the publisher choose to place it in this way? Is there significance? Is there not significance? One of your observations could be, I don't think there's any significance in that comma. Excellent. That's a great observation. So the big question, how many? How many observations do I need to do for one verse? I want 30. 30 observations. Okay? 30 observations is extremely tough. I'm going to let you know right now you're going to start out and you are going to breeze through it. And you're going to look down and you're like, I got eight. Eight is all I have right now and I'm done. I'm, I can't think of any more. There's nothing else that's in this verse. He cheated. He gave himself Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to show us and it's so much longer. Acts 1, 8 is so short. There's no way I can reach 30. Set it down. Come back to it later. Okay? You have a full week to have 30 observations of Acts 1-8. Your observations can be questions. That's fine. Your observations can be, I have no idea what this term means. That's fine. Make sure you have good observations because once you're at like that 18 mark, your observations start to decline in like how good they are. Your observations turn into, this verse has 19 words. Is that an observation? Yes. Is that a good observation? No, that's probably not a good observation unless some mysterical number appears that God has specifically used. To, I have no idea. Okay? So look through it. You have one week to look through Acts 1-8 trying to create 30 observations. Alright? Bring them next week. Okay? If you want to print them out, that's fine. If you want to handwrite them, that's fine. 
my email, Craig at StartupBible.com. If you just absolutely hate me, feel free to shoot me some hate mail. If you have any questions, best way to contact me is through that.